This podcast is explicit from the start and not suitable for children. It may also be triggering for those who have suffered abuse in the past. Everyone else. Everyone else. My earliest memory of something not being quite right was watching a cartoon of the three little piggies and the wolf blowing the house down. And I must have been about three. And it was like an epiphany. You know, I was a baby, but... And I'm thinking, that's it, that's what's wrong. She's a wolf. And I thought my mum was a wolf. And I used to think she hid her wolfness inside her skin. It's funny because it's not, she never did anything dreadful. You hit, you know, things that happen to other kids, but it's this, in a way, it's almost worse because she was so psychically cruel. I think I must have been about four. We moved into a flat. So we're on the eighth floor, just me and my mum. She's got new furniture and she got this orange heavy ashtray I don't know why I remember but that really stands out in my mind this orange heavy marble ashtray and one night I woke up and had a nightmare and she wasn't there she'd gone I was all alone and so I got the chair the dining room chair pulled it through the hallway to the front door and stood on it and tried to open the door but of course I was little so I didn't realise that I'm trying to pull the door but standing on the chair and the chair's in front of the door and I was panicking and panicking and I couldn't get this door open and I got down by the letterbox and was screaming lady, lady next door, help me, help me my mummy's gone, my mummy's gone and then she turned up I mean I don't know, it felt like forever later could have been ten minutes and my mum and just sort of shouted, we went mental, shouting, screaming, like, what's wrong with you? I was only gone a little while. I was having a drink with Aunt Teresa, who's my mum's friend. She'd bring men home and sometimes I was allowed in her room, sometimes I wasn't. And I'd wake up and I'd be hungry and I couldn't go in her room and I'd just eat the biscuits from the biscuit barrel and things like that. So little things like that, but what was really difficult would be sometimes she would love me. Like... It was heaven. And other times, I was the worst thing ever. I was an it, a thing, and she'd call me that. And she'd laugh at me and call me a clumsy effing idiot. One time I remember her hitting me so hard that I was my feet were off the floor, and then she just threw me into the bed. Um and dragging me along and pushing me off my bike because I couldn't ride it without the stabiliser, so she shoved me off. So there was... It wasn't beating, it was the cruelty. And it got worse as I got older. There were times when she would be lovely and she would delight in me. I was bright and I was articulate and I taught myself to read when I was tiny. And as I got older, 
she began to hate that. And she'd tell me not to use words over three syllables. I remember one time I said something was atavistic. And she said, well, what does that mean? I said, well, sort of primal, sort of Neanderthal, but not really. It's not really that. Why can't you just fucking use that then? And I wasn't trying to be pretentious or show off. I just, I just knew that word, and that was the word that fitted. But I never lost a sense of her being a wolf, ever. And I used to try and catch her out. As a little girl, I used to pretend to do her hair and play hairdressers because I was trying to find the join in her skin where her wolf body began. And I was certain that if I looked hard enough, I could see her wolf fur underneath the plastic. I thought it was like a rubber skin that she was wearing. And when she used to scream at me, I'd think that's her growl. She can't hide her growl. There was never a moment when I felt safe with her. I never could trust her and go home and just say, I'm in trouble, Mum. I've made a mistake. She would laugh at me. She would almost, it was like she would wait for me to be defenceless and then would really enjoy telling me what a letdown I was, what a disappointment I was. Um, and I began to hate her and I wanted her to die. I say I wanted to die, and I did, but that was like a secret thing. What I really wanted was for her to love me. She had my sisters who were, I have two half-sisters with her, and their dads didn't stick around. And when she was pregnant with one of the last sister, she pretended she had a cyst on her ovary and that she wasn't pregnant. And all our neighbours were laughing at her, so obviously it must have been an absurd story. But I was seven, eight, so I believed it. That my mum had this terrible cyst and did that mean she was going to die? And then I heard my grandmother and my auntie discussing the baby. So she'd gone into hospital to have the cyst removed. And they were talking about the baby and will she have it adopted? And it just clicked, and I thought, oh, my God, she's had a baby. She's going to give it away. She could give us away. So there was always this sense of, she will leave us. I'll be alone. And I didn't know my dad. He was 17 when I was born, too, so I never I didn't meet him until I was 14. And I knew I had no one. My grandparents were lovely, but I wasn't theirs, and she'd taken me away. And that, I think, was always the worst thing. I, I tried so hard to make her love me that I lost all sight of who I was. She'd lie about me in front of me. So I was at dance school and I was good. But she said I was better than I was and that I'd, I'd gotten this audition to be on Channel 4's thing but I hadn't, but there was a reason I couldn't do it. And so I learnt really on that not only would she abandon me, but that I wasn't good enough who I was. And so I began to lie, but I also began to feel utterly unreal, like a shadow, totally dissociated, like a fake. 
and I would just make myself whatever people wanted to please them. And so, of course, people think you're a phony. And you are a phony, but you're not really a phony. You're someone who just wants to not be in danger and for people to care, really. And I stopped knowing what I felt. I didn't know how to feel anymore. So she made me tough, but tough in a way that was awful, not just tough enough to cope with the world. Nothing touched me. I didn't know how to be loved. I didn't know how to love. And then I met my best friend, Michelle. I started secondary school and on the day that we had to go and sort of see the school and meet our first class, so before the first day of term proper, I was paired up with this beautiful girl and she was just this ray of light. Her laughter was the most contagious laughter. She had bright, bright blue eyes and curly as fuck hair that sprang from her head. She gave me this colour and she said, and she says, I stiffened up. And I remember thinking, oh dear God, make her let go. And she said to me, I am going to hug you, my darling, until you let me love you. And she was just so amazing. That was it, we were friends. She saved me. She she became my mum. She was everything. She liked me for who I was and would see me she could see me and without her I wouldn't be what who I am now her upbringing was the absolute opposite of mine very secure very loving mum and dad who adored her one brother they were the center of the parents life and so she just had that kind of warm open secure heart she was fierce so loyal she was just amazing. She was amazing. Yeah, and she made. She said, "I'm going to make you let me love you." And I did soften in the end. <laughs> and um, we were sort of, I suppose, for some people, a bit weirdly close. Like my mum didn't tell me. I never. I was never bought my first bra. Michelle gave me a bra. It's like, honey, you need to start wearing a bra now. And I was a bit freaked out by growing up and maturing. She showed me how to use a tampon because my mum said they would make me lose my virginity and talked me through it through the door because I was really scared I didn't tell my mum I'd started my periods or anything I was terrified I thought she'd think I was wrong she didn't come to our house very often I was over at hers all the time every weekend really she did sometimes come and in a way it was great that she did know my mum she was unfazed by my mother but what was brilliant was she saw it and she would say oh my god why does she say those things to you and so I didn't feel I was going crazy because when you're alone with that you think you're evil and I'd say to her oh my mum said and she'd say oh my god she saw enough to know what my mum was like and Michelle would say things like, oh Jean why do you say that 
I mean, she's so unafraid of anyone. I mean, really unafraid. Yeah, she was amazing. She'd get into fights for me, defend me. One time we were kids at my house, I had an argument with my stepdad. We were a bit fiery. And he strangled me at the top of the stairs and threw me down the stairs. And she threw herself at him to protect me. It broke her heart because she didn't come from a violent family. She'd never seen anything like that. She just tried to protect me and she stood in his way. I mean, she was incredible. Michelle was there for everything, for absolutely everything. When I had a surprise, um, it's not really surprising, is it? Had a nervous breakdown. And it was Michelle that got me out. It was Michelle that made promises to the doctors. It was Michelle that rescued me. Not my mum. My mum didn't come. She came once. I was locked in a psychiatric ward, which is a really fucking scary place. And Michelle came every day and curled up around me on the bed and she stroked my hair. But we also got absolutely fucked up together and had so many laughs and, you know, this is... We were growing up in the, in the what? So we started secondary school in 85, so we were the E generation, driving around the M25 listening to KISS FM when it was still illegal, looking for rays, getting off our tits on E and God knows what else. I won't let my children listen to this. Um, <laughs> you know, discovering boys, it was amazing. So she was my counterpoint she was this light and so were her mum and dad her dad used to give me a fiver pocket money when he gave her pocket money and her mum was just this warm loving dinner was always on the table they loved us they liked us I mean they adored their shell we were each other's bridesmaids we were there for each other when they had the babies she you know she framed my books she actually framed the books and hung them on her walls. She was that proud. Who needs a mum when you've got a Michelle? Like, she couldn't have been more loving and proud and amazing. So I owe her my existence, actually. I wanted to die, like, not in a grandiose thing either. I just think, well, that would be the way to solve it. And um, you just think about it. But it just made sense, not even in a depressive way. It was just like, well, this is awful. Why do you stick around doing this? And, of course, that shell knocked that idea off its pedestal. Yeah, so loving her, I began to love myself. Someone like Michelle loves you, you can't help but like yourself. And then you start to like your life. And then you start to live your life. But it was eating me up, this sort of hatred of her and this anger. And I'd gotten really self-destructive, 15, 14 onwards, blew off school, bunked off, never went, didn't go to uni, went travelling a bit, had my first baby at 21. Luckily, that was gorgeous. And that made me realise that my relationship with my mother was wrong because I couldn't have hurt this little tiny beauty and I forgave her. I don't love her, but I tried to start. I tried to see the world through her eyes, which sounds really 
sanctimonious. But if I didn't, I would have killed her, I think. I used to have these fantasies about driving down there and strangling her. And um, I realised that the only way for her to not kill me, because I was so self-destructive and just so... Even though Michelle had been amazing and she had really helped, I still didn't really trust... I trusted Michelle, basically. I found it very hard to really believe people. I had to try and see, understand her and think about why she did what she did. And I will never know. But I've kind of had to make up... I've tried to have have some compassion for her and figure out my version of what it is just so I can let it go. And that really helped. And then I started... And it was weird. It was like this sort of little growth. I started to do the things I'd always wanted. So I went back to uni got a master's and then a PhD and I wrote stories and and I've more importantly I am not my mother I left that town I left her she didn't kill me I didn't kill her and I'm not like her and my daughter is 22 and she's my one of my best friends and we're really close And that is how I've survived my mother, by having this beautiful girl. And that's how I know I'm not her. Because she still wants to be with me. She wants to hang out with me. And that makes me really sad for my mum, that she doesn't have that relationship. And that she never actually got to know who I was. And I'm just glad that I finally did. If you like the podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. You can subscribe there and on Acast for future instalments of the podcast and more stories from the back catalogue from everyone else. <laughs>